I think right now in the world, I'm having to sit a lot with holding space, like being a helper and the harmed at the same time Mm. and what that feels like. Because just, you know, in the last year, it's been very common to, you know, just be in my own fear and tears around what's going on in my country and then jump on a screen with a woman who looks just like me who's currently crying for her Black son when I just finished crying for mine. And having to just put that to the side and show up for her and do my job and 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 the healing of that, you know, and also the fear and the guilt. Should I be trying to help you dissuade this fear when it's real and legitimate? You know what I mean? Like, is that... Right? Like, you know, just sitting with all of that. And so there's just never any rest. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I am so honored to have Courtney Leak on the podcast today. Courtney is just an awesome human being. She's an incredible therapist, a dynamic speaker, a podcaster, an empowering mom, and a really talented singer. On top of all that, Uh, We at OnSite get to experience her talents firsthand as she is one of our top OnSite guides, leading people through transformative experience and getting incredible results with people doing individual work, couples work, group work. I am not going to read her lengthy resume, but I did want to introduce you to her briefly before we dive into this thought-provoking and honest conversation. She received her master's of social work, and she's been a therapist for over 10 years working in the mental health field. She specializes in working with those who've experienced trauma, grief and loss, attachment disorders, relationship complications, and the mental health needs of marginalized populations. She is trained in EMDR, experiential therapy, and psychodrama, and she's presented at various conferences and symposiums focusing on the journey back to wholeness, including her TEDx talk, Woke and Well. Courtney's the host of two podcasts, The Magic Well and The Hats Off Podcast. She has a fundamental belief that everyone is naturally equipped with what they need to find and meet their purpose, but it's often hidden underneath fear, hurt, and negative views of ourselves. She's got a pretty cool framework and philosophy on supporting us that when we are willing to own our own story, minus the fear and shame, we can actually embrace our true selves and live abundantly in our purpose. We were really excited to have Courtney on the podcast, and you'll figure out why when you listen to this vulnerable conversation about showing up as our whole selves, leaning into real conversations around race and gender, and how what our world is in the deepest need of right now is love and acceptance. And that starts with us. As a black therapist working often with people of color, Courtney has a poignant and needed point of view on our current culture. And we're so grateful that she graciously shares her experiences by speaking honestly about the injustices around us and calls us forward to do and be better. I hope you love this conversation with my friend Courtney as much as I did. Welcome, Courtney. So good to have you here with us today. Hi, thank y'all for having me. Where did your desire to become a therapist come from? And kind of what's your why and why you do what you do? Yeah, so the desire to become a therapist chose me. I did not choose it. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer when I went to college. Can you imagine? (laughs) Now that you know me, can you even imagine? You'd Um, be tough, though. I, I would. I would have been a beast and it would have been such a lean into my shadow side mm. that I wonder what it would have taken from me where therapy feels like a lean into my light. But yeah, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer and then I ended up working at a group home and wanted to then work in social services and be a social worker and kind of dismantle the system and bring it back up Mm. in my view of what correctly looked like. And then 
through my MSW program, I found just the beauty of who people are when they are allowed to be well, Mm. when they have permission to be whole. And I just wanted to help people find themselves again. Wow. And the through line kind of on that I'm imagining is like there is a a view that you hold of people and kind of the world of like how restoration and making things right and Mm -hmm. seeking the best and justice for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that so much of who we are is based on how we feel about ourselves. So much of how we see the world, so much of how we treat others is in direct correlation to our level of wellness and wholeness. And just how it's just not been allowed, like people have not been allowed for various reasons to be their whole selves because of just oppression on various levels. Mm -hmm. The thing about oppression is that it oppresses everyone on the ladder. You know what I mean? And it tricks us into thinking that the goal is to get to a higher rung when the goal should be, let's all get off the ladder. You know what I mean? It Mm -hmm. tells men, you have to be a certain thing and children, you have to be a certain thing and people of color, you have to be a certain thing. And none of that is ever our whole self. There's not a rung on a ladder of oppression that says, this is your whole self. And then that just changes how people treat each other. And child Courtney when you were young Mm -hmm. was that just instilled deeply in you and like just deep in your being absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) we were all about a ladder um yeah yeah, no I you know I'm I'm a black woman from the south so my family's generational trauma and pain is as deep as our roots Mm. and you got to see the result of that day in and day out. Now, what I will say is that there was an inner knowing that this wasn't all that we were. I would get these glimpses. I remember finding this poem that my grandmother wrote when she was 17. And if anyone knew my grandmother, they would have so many beautiful things to say about her. Poet wouldn't be one of them. Mm. And I remember reading that poem and then having this very like deep sadness that said, I wonder when this got taken from her. And then immediately remembering my rung on the ladder and never asking the question. Mm. But I would sneak into her room and like find the poem and like read it while she was like outside hanging up laundry. She was old school. She had a dryer and still hung out laundry. And so I knew that always took a long time. And whenever she would do that would be the times I would go into her room and find pieces of her. Because she was so dynamic. And I understood that at some point society had taken that from her. And my grandfather was the same. He could have gone to what they called then the Negro Leagues, but you know, he met my grandmother and they had to make a different life choice. And so, but I never, like, I never saw him throw a baseball. Hmm. I knew he could have gone to the Negro Leagues and I never saw him throw a baseball. And so there were always these questions in me of why. what, Like, what has happened to this passionate soul? And so I think I always had that, but no one taught me that per se. Were you able to ask them later on in life? I did. I So I've always been the one who says the things. And so growing up, I was fast and disrespectful. That was the label <laughs> that was given to that kind of behavior, especially a girl. But I learned that if I would find the right moment, there were these sweet spots of moments. And if I would find the right moment, they would answer it a little bit. Like my grandfather had this old like 57 Chevy Mm. and would take me on rides. And it was like the big seat, no seat belt. (laughs) So when we hit a good turn, I could slide across (laughs) the seat. And I would like lay down, this is the country of South Carolina and just watch the trees go by. And there'd be these sweet moments. And I would be like, granddaddy, tell me about your mom. Mm -hmm. And it was just us. And so he would, you know, Um, I had to learn how to connect and then question, which I think has helped me in the work that I do. I didn't know it then, but gosh, it's the same thing I do now. 
Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that connect and then question. You know, it reminded me of your TEDx talk that you did, uh, Woken Well, where part of part of it you talked about the importance of leaning into difficult conversations and why it's important. But I often wonder because I've you know talked about that a lot. We have we share a passion there with you know, me coming through the doorway of unspoken, which is just trying to say the unsaid, which is kind of what we get an opportunity to do in our profession. Mm -hmm. And hopefully a lot of the benefit of being in our profession is that we get to try to integrate it into our own lives. But in today's climate, I've seen so many people go the other way. And even though I understand the science uh, around why, uh, when we're in collective trauma, and how much that can activate individual trauma, you know, what parts of our brains shut down and keep us from having those hard or vulnerable conversations. I have an understanding of it, but I often don't, I don't know how to train. I, I can translate the need and I feel like I'm selling that all the time, but outside of the context of a curated psychologically safe bubble, like onsite, it's not perfect. We're not always there. We have our fractures, but we work, work at that. I often wonder and struggle with how do you take that to everyone else? Because there is, there is a skill. Mm. There's a skill to do it outside of the context of psychological safety. How do I lean into a difficult conversation out of a, let's say a counseling context and protect my heart and also be respectful of the person I'm having it with. And you just gave us a, a two, a, a two word recipe, which is connect and then question but feather that out a little bit, if you would. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on how we could help spread that a little bit more in today's climate. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've been playing around with that um, a lot. And one of the things I've actually been using, uh, hats off to our dear friend, Mary Bellafano, is the double. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen her just like she'll double a cashier, like, and then all of a sudden, like this whole connection thing is happening. You're getting mm -hmm. to witness it. And you're like, how did she do that? It's maybe Bellafato a sorcerer, <laughs> um, but yeah. And just what happens when you, because I believe that people really are in the reality that feels safest for them. Mm. And in order for you to help them move to a different space, you have to first connect with the reality that feels that they're currently in because that's the safest reality. And what I have found is when someone can have that right double about what your truth is right now, it shifts things, you know? I know that I've been in these really hard conversations recently and the other person has just been so elevated and I'll just say, gosh, I'm so scared. Hmm. And just leave it and just let them sit in that. Yeah, I'm terrified, you know, and and see what that does when I'm not trying to make my point first. Because when I'm scared, I don't care about your point. I don't I don't I really don't. I think we have to be honest about what fear requires of us. It requires me to not hear you. It requires me to not care about your point. Fear completely, it, it takes all of me. You know, like have you, like when people are in a scary situation and then they talk about it later, they're like, I don't remember what was going on. I don't remember like, because fear takes all of me. And so let me first just join you there which is hard. I know for me, it's hard when I'm in my judgment and I feel like your fear is irrational, mm -hmm. you know, and having to own that, like having to own, am I in my judge right now? I just finished rereading the four agreements mm -hmm. and reconnecting with that thought of like the judge and the victim. And yeah, like when I'm in my judge, I, I don't even believe your fear is real. And that doesn't matter. What I believe doesn't matter. It's what you believe. And if I want to lean into you, I need to be in your world. That then also requires for me to be doing my own work 
so that I'm in me and in your world. Mm. We can do both. I think people feel like they're going to lose themselves when they lean in. And so that's that pullback, that fear of leaning in. It's that I'm going to lose me if I lean in. And it's like, that's, that's, I mean, that can happen. Absolutely. We see that in codependence all the time. And if I'm doing my work, if I've checked in with me, I've checked my emotional bank balance, I'm, you know, clear about what I'm feeling in my body, I'm grounded, I'm rooted, I can lean in and take me with me and then also have space for you. Mm. So well said. And so that's something I've been trying to practice imperfectly. (laughs) (laughs) This might be some, the first time some of our listeners have heard that word doubling. How would you sort of Mm -hmm. describe it for listeners that don't know what it is? Yeah. So doubling is speaking for another person. It's speaking as though you are a deeper inner voice for them. Um, In the therapeutic world, we would ask, you know, can I double you? And, you know, usually it's done by pre-COVID, like hand on your back, standing behind the person, and you just speak as them and then give them permission to correct it or state it. And it's a very beautiful process because a lot of times people are feeling something deeply that they're so afraid to say out loud. And when someone else says it, it gives them permission. Like I've really been leaning into that permission. Like think about how much permission is taken from us at a little age, at a very young age. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Miles, you you understand it. You're probably, you know, saying no a lot, you yeah. know, because kids want to do the wildest things. It's like, yeah, I know you really want to jump off that highest point. And I'm not going to be able to let you do that, but, you know, mm. and, and so from a very young age, we lose permission. And one of the ways we lose permission very early is in our speaking, because kids also say the darndest things. And what I have found is it teaches us not to then speak our truth at a very early age. We don't let them get curious or question because it embarrasses us. Mm. And Yeah. And so what it does in doubling is give someone permission to really sit with what's my truth. Because when I can identify my truth, I can really move in a different direction. And so in the regular world, I'll just kind of speak as me. I mean, I'll speak in I, even when I'm not talking about me. And so I'll see someone and they'll just, you can just feel the exhaustion and you, and you just say like, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. And they're like, I am exhausted, (laughs) you know, or they'll say I'm more than exhausted. People will naturally change it if you just, you know, create a safe space for them to do so. And also I'm moving from safe to sacred, a sacred space. Because I think when we're talking about hard conversations, real, and that's the other thing, maybe we need to quit calling them hard. I'm I'm really big on like what we say, you mm. know, I think it was an onsite quote I saw one time, like the words we use is the house we live in. And so is it hard or is it real? Is it hard or is it authentic? You know, like maybe we need to change what we call it. So moving into real conversations, it's not going to feel safe, but, but it can feel sacred. Mm. And so I've been trying to create sacred places for people to speak into what they feel and need. But that's just such a beautiful shift, you know, and I think our language does it almost like makes it even more scary to like know you're walking into a hard conversation versus sort of taking the air out of that and just saying, yeah, I'm just I need to be real. You know, we need to have a real conversation. Yeah. Oh, and there's a there's a togetherness that comes with a method of actually doubling, which I'm so glad to hear you, you quickly go to that as a potential solution for helping people say what is withheld because ultimately I've heard it said too of doubling is that it's you're you're supplementing the role of the protagonist and and you're basically adding to um or giving them something that would say what is withheld and mm-hmm. to 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 do that it's like okay I don't have to I don't have to draw out my truth alone when there's a mirror yeah when there's a mirror there that can empathetically support me and value what it is I need to say. And like what you said with kids, they're the, they, golly, uh, what mirrors, but it is the a number one tool. I've talked about this on a couple of conversations with Lindsay recently. Another for another context is, man, 
when my kids are melting down, which happens all the time, and once I can get up out of the shame of I'm a terrible parent, what am I doing to screw up my kid? I mm-hmm. I can get on a knee and say, You didn't you didn't you didn't want to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to go to bed. And within about the third time I say it, almost every time, um de escalation. And it may activate again, but de escalation, I didn't think about really what I'm doing right there is doubling. Yeah, absolutely. And in your case, uh, we're, you know, backing up to where we all are collectively, it might be good to give an example of doubling, which I'd be happy to role play with you a little bit if you wanted to double me on something. But yeah, let's do that. You, you open to that? Yeah, absolutely. So and we'll just try to make it quick. But I, and you know, I'll use my wife because she's, uh, we've talked about this. She's opened to me using certain parts of our relationship. <laughs> um I've learned to get permission for that nowadays. And she's actually, right. she's actually been in a group with you. So you probably know all of our stuff yes. or some of it. Um, but I am questioning before connecting right now. Mm. I'm in a pattern of questioning over connecting and you, and it's creating to where for me, well-intended trying to be supportive and solve a problem for her feeling criticized. Yeah. So stated or corrected, I really feel it's important as a husband to be a protector and protectors fix. Mm. That fits. And just to bounce back out of the moment, I probably shouldn't so quick. I'd get emotional, but that is deep in my truth. Mm-hmm. And it's a validating what a what a validating positive reframe of affirming something that I am seeing in me is broken, and saying actually it's it's coming from a good place, and you know that inside you, I did but I didn't until you just doubled me, and I'm being completely mm. honest. This is real time. I wouldn't have thought about it through that context, but suddenly I feel a little bit more confidence in oh yeah, well that's why I'm doing that. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's an effective solution. I might could step back and see where it's not serving the relationship, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to protect and yeah and think about what's going on in the world right now all of like the protector is ramped up mm. because the world is scary mm. you know mm. the 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 world the world is scary on a level of i don't know if i can hug people i love safely mm. that's the level of scary the world is like if i hug my mom will i kill her you know, like if we're really honest about the level of fear and that we've been in that, we're going on a year now. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't seen my dad in a year. Wow. Because he has heart issues. He has diabetes. He's over 65. He's a black male and COVID has widely impacted communities of color. I have not physically seen my father in over a year, you know? And my dad is my daddy. Like he's still, I still call him daddy. Like, you know, like we're sitting with that, like what's required of us to protect the people we love and that deep down we still can't protect them. And so when you give me something that I might actually be able to do something about, it's like, well, bring it on. Mm. Like, is this a problem that I could actually have a solution for when it feels like the world is on fire? Bring it on. Mm. I know you might not need that. And I really might need it. (laughs) Well, so we might be at an impasse, you know, and it's yeah, it's a it's a difficult place. I think especially for men, because we have given y'all such limited roles in society. Hmm. Say more about that. Say more about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, to provide, to protect, to be strong in all the ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, to lead, mm. but not lead through partnership, lead through conquering, lead through power um, and overpowering and if you can look good while you're doing it, like that's about it. Like right. that's the the Oof. very short, very, very loaded list of our expectations of men, if we're honest. And again, I'm trying to, my word for 2021 is alignment. Mm. And I'm mm. learning how my honesty really 
helps me to be aligned. Telling the truth helps me to be aligned. You know, I said to a friend recently that even me, you know, as I feel different when a man cries than when a woman cries. If I'm real honest, when a woman cries, I can sit in that space with her forever. When a man cries, I really want to figure out how to make him stop crying. It mm. feels scary because if the men are crying, then this is bad. Mm. That's that's something to, like you know what I mean. Like that that's coming from a place of fear in me of who I believe men to be. And so sitting with that, sitting with that as I'm raising a little boy in this world and changing that narrative for him very young he was able to tell my granddaddy I'm allowed to have feelings mm. and it was so cute then and now that he's nine and five feet tall sometimes I'm like oh don't have the feelings mm, oh this is hard because he's becoming a man mm. and I'm having to again because kids are the best mirror I'm having to sit with my stuff around who I think a man should be and move through that so I can give him to be give him the permission to be the man he wants to be and deserves to be. And it's uncomfortable as hell. I remember when I was little, um, I went with my dad to go see the movie La Bamba mm, about yes. Jimmy Valens and the plane crash. And he cried in it. And it was the first time I ever saw him cry. And I just remember being like, so like, he cried, you know, it was like, I remember it now, you know, like 30 something years later, mm -hmm. that it just stuck with me. And that for that to feel that revolutionary, you're so right. It's so deeply ingrained in us. Yeah. Yeah. And we got to blow that system up. Yeah. Like, gosh, how it limits mm -hmm. It limits men so much. And I really, I, I was, you know, in a group recently and, you know, the women in the group were just kind of like, my husband doesn't do this and doesn't do that. And, and I was like, you know what? We as women really have to own the fact that we haven't allowed the boys to do that. And then we expect the men to make up for it. You can't condition someone to be, a wall to be shut down all of their life in very valid situations. I have seen little boys careen off a bike head first into a tree and it's toughen up, suck it up. And I'm like, this, this child had a full on injury. Like, like now we can't cry. Like this mm -hmm. would be the perfect time for some crying. And the response is toughen up. I've seen little boys love a little, like another person so deeply and buy them a gift and, you know, share with their parents and put on their cutest little outfit and then get embarrassed or shamed or rejected. When is like, when, when can they cry if that's not the time? It's like, suck it up. You'll go, just go conquer someone else. And mm. it's like, no, let that baby grieve. Like when, when can they cry and feel if these are not those moments? Mm. And again, the same moments that are absolutely allowed for little girls. So we're sending the message to women that that is exactly who they should be. And to men that it is exactly who they should not be. And so then we are dooming heterosexual relationships from the jump. Because we're telling, you know, if there's a male-female relationship, it's like, oh, now you will always be at odds. You will never be on the same page. Mm. You are such different beings when they're not. It's so interesting how we do that. And I think I've also noticed just what we steal from children. Like my friends who had little girls, they are so feisty and bold and like just in themselves and our my son has always been so tender and kind and loving and I remember me and my friends talking one time of like I wonder when that is stolen from them mm. like when is the little girl who's in the rain boots and the tutu and the army helmet told you know put on a dress button it up be cute and quiet and when is the tender little boy told those feelings are weak and stupid stop it and gosh, like what that steals from them. Again, they're not allowed to be whole. It's so sad. I remember uh, one of our therapists talking about sort of the process of grabbing several pictures of your childhood 
different ages. And I think that that would it would be so cool to explore the difference and like where where was that stolen from us and what happened in between that moment of sort of being bold and innocent and free of what other people thought and then sort of when when we start to take it on and the world starts to shape us so much. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the things I love about the work we do at OnSite. I feel like it just, when we show people a snapshot of them as a child and then help them connect that to how they're showing up, because I think there's so much shame around how we're showing up as an adult because we're disconnected from the truth of how we got there and who taught it to us um, or what taught it to us. You know what I mean? Because we expect as adults, I should be doing better, which maybe we should eliminate should. Like should isn't a real thing. Um, when people are like, there shouldn't be traffic. I'm like, there literally is traffic. So, <laughs> so I don't, yeah. But you know, so when we believe the shoulds about ourselves and we disconnect from the whys, um, I think it causes us to self-harm. And then that self-harm just turns into an ongoing cycle where we that are other harming and self-harming simultaneously when we can get back to that why and see that snapshot and remember that little child who really really was good and innocent and sweet and amazing and how that was you know taken from us from other people that it was taken from them it's not about blame you know they did what they were taught to do because that's what we do as humans but being able to look at it and be like, oh, this is where this comes from. Again, I think it gives us permission to change it in a way that I don't think people have if they try to start at their adult. Mm. Golly, so well said. I think we could do a whole conversation on that. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. Hopping in to quickly tell you about our newly re-released digital course, 30 Days of Living Centered. If you've ever felt like your days are running you, instead of the other way around, you're not alone. We created this course for anyone who feels off balance and unsettled by the busyness of life. This self-paced program is an invitation to establish daily habits and practices that keep you grounded, even when your circumstances aren't. When you sign up, you'll receive 30 days of video teaching, short reflections, and practices designed to put the topic into action. We've even built in daily reminder emails to keep you accountable. To celebrate our podcast launch, we're giving you 50% off when you use the code podcast. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash 30 days to learn more. Now, back to the interview. One thing I like about you is you do lean in to the idea of, well, in your words, kind of blowing things up that just don't serve us anymore retooling or attempting to undo broken systems mm-hmm. um, or old ways of thinking that are limiting. Another one that uh, I've loved hearing you talk about, and I think it's so relevant uh, because I've had so many conversations with my friends of color about therapy and being accepted or not accepted. Well, this was specifically in the black community. And I'd kind of like to hear, what's it like being a Black therapist? (laughs) Yeah, um, hard, Hmm. exhausting, and worth it. I think right now in the world, I'm having to sit a lot with, you know, holding space, like being a helper and the harmed at the same time, Hmm. and what that feels like. Because just... You know, in the last year, it's been very common to, you know, just be in my own fear and tears around what's going on in my country and then jump on a screen with a woman who looks just like me, who's currently crying for her Black son when I just finished crying for mine. And having to just put that to the side and show up for her and do my job and, and, and the healing of that, you know, and also the fear of like, you know, and the guilt, should I be trying to help you dissuade this fear when it's real and legitimate? You know what I mean? Like, is that 
right? Like, you know, just sitting with all of that. And so there's just never any rest and the self-care is really hard. In addition to, because I can't go gather with my friends and go to brunch and go on a good vacation. And you know what I mean? Like in addition to some of the things that really feel my soul have been taken because of the pandemic. You know what I mean? It was, it's this perfect storm of exhaustion. And when I see someone break the generational chains, like it is, who it is transformational to see someone who more than likely their ancestors were brought here in chains, break generational chains. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like such a validation to the suffering that my people have experienced to help people break the chains. Because, gosh, when they put us in those chains, they, like, those chains didn't leave us at the Emancipation Proclamation. They didn't leave us at Juneteenth. They didn't leave us at Civil Rights. They just became invisible. And I want to say maybe heavier. Yeah, because then you have to pretend like you're not chained. And if I'm pretending like I'm not holding a cup, (laughs) no one's validating that I'm holding a cup. The cup feels heavier. Yeah. You know, and so there's just something like sometimes I'm just, you know, crying out to God. Thank you for choosing me to do this. Like, ooh, like me, little old me. Wow. Wow. Who must you think I am? Goodness. Well, I accept. Um, And I will stand in it, but it's heavy. It's really heavy. Yeah. That is so heavy. And I just feel so grateful that you do the work that you do. And the woman that needs to talk to someone about the fears around her son can come to you and you understand and can hold space for her. And she doesn't have to fight against microaggressions or have to explain herself and like what a gift that you do what you do and you're you are who you are for her and for so many people and for us thank you thank you yeah yeah i echo all that and i was just curious like your what's your your theory or belief on like well for example i was talking about my friends of color or my black friends that have said oh yeah we don't do therapy in my community not for us Um, that's a kind of a privileged white thing to do therapy. How prominent is that? Do you feel like it's changing? And what do you think the origins are? Yeah, so I think the origins come from, yeah, the truth. When you look back at the history of therapy, I don't know if y'all saw the APA just released a massive apology to the BIPOC community. Uh, and I mean, like, and and they did a good job of like, not only admitting like, this is the harm we did and this is how long we pretended like we did it. Um, you know what I mean? But so the origins come from, you know, oppression. They come mm-hmm. from the belief, you know, when you look at therapy in its complete beginning, really only rich white men who owned land could go to therapy. Everyone else, like, what did you need therapy for? You know, women were delirious and they used women's mental health as a way to sexually abuse women. And people of color were, if they were even like allowed on the premises, they were used in highly unethical experiments or they were hospitalized as a form of control. The first, um, like African-American mental like hospital in the country. I saw, I was at a black mental health symposium one time and the keynote speaker showed a like printout of just the like admission log and several of the people's diagnosis was desire for freedom. Hmm. Wow! It was like, oh, do you want to be free? Oh, you must be crazy. Let's hospitalize you. And it then also became a way to continue free labor. It was like, oh, we'll diagnose them with something and then we can continue to use them for free labor um, because we don't pay people who are in mental health facilities, even if they're working. Um, Just like, you know, we don't pay those in the prison system 
even though they're working. And so there is a long, long history of oppression and distrust um, in the medical and mental health community for people of color. And it is earned. Like it is not a conspiracy theory. It is earned. And I think once the like the narrative started to change, I don't think it was acknowledged well. Again, the APA just started, you know, including people of color. They didn't come out and have a conversation and say, hey, we harmed you all for a century and some change. And we are sorry. And this is the work we're going to do. Like there was no... um reckoning. So I know one of the things we say a lot of times is it's not the rip, it's the repair. And I believe that to a degree, but I think there has to be a reckoning in between rip and repair where the harm, the person who is harmed really sits with what they've done in their shadow side and lets themselves actually, not the shame, but the guilt of, wow, I participated. I, because if we're not aware of what our capabilities are, what's in us, we're doomed to repeat it. You know, I have to sit with the fact that I come from a family of abusers and reckon with what of that is in me if I don't want to abuse my son. Hmm. Like, just like we have to sit with what's on the shadow side and what we've participated in up to this point and really feel that so that then it can, it encourages us not to do it again. And I don't think that that was really done. It was just kind of like, oh, well, we've stopped that now. Let's, let's just move on and go to the next thing. And so then the harmed doesn't get an opportunity to feel seen, validated, and therefore the repair doesn't really happen. It's more of like an appeasing and a, instead of a repair. And, you know, and in that time where especially Black people really did find solace was in the church, which again comes from our slave roots. That was bred into us. The only thing we were given was church. Mm. The only day off, the only time off we were given was church. Now, what we know is that part of that was orchestrated to encourage the oppression. Like they were constantly being inundated with certain scriptures that talk about respecting the slave master and all of those things. And so they were using church as a way to continue the oppression. But then as we found our freedom from slavery, church then just became the safe place. It became the solace. It became the community because a lot of times everywhere else we were having to code switch and go back out into white society and pretend we weren't angry and sad and scared. And then we got to go to church and wail. I don't know if you've ever been to black church, but it is mm -hmm. an event. We, you know, we wail, we cry out, we sing, we dance, we shout to God. And then that kind of just would fortify us and prepare us and have that cathartic experience, which we know at onsite, a cathartic experience is everything, to then go back out into the world. And so for a long time, because we were in survival mode, that was enough. I don't know if in the even 60s and 70s, if it was safe to do the work. Hmm. You know, because what the work has done for me is it's given me my voice back. It has caused me to set boundaries. It has caused me to speak my truth. And if I'm honest, in the 50s, doing my like, who like what, who were you going to set a boundary with in the 50s in the South? Like, you know, Mr. So-and-so. Now, I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm not going to respond to you calling me boy. That could get you killed. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it was safe to do the work, even when things started to shift and the work was being offered. I don't know if it was safe. And I think another part is I don't know if there were enough therapists of color being allowed because therapy started to be open to everyone, but being trained as a therapist wasn't. You know, they weren't getting into the colleges and receiving the degrees and expertise that would allow them to provide the therapy. And so then you're being asked to bear your soul and it doesn't feel like it's a safe space, A, because we've been, you know, code switching as a trauma response. And then B, because does this person really get it? 
are they going to use this against me? You know, I think about all of the people, you know, in the 80s, women who would admit that their husband was still living at home and then they would lose their assistance. You know what I mean? Like, or it was, or I have to put my husband out so that I can feed my children because we're in a crisis. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, like, it, it's not made up. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to start with the gaslighting of, oh, you could have been going to therapy. No, no, you could not have. That's that's not, that's not true. And so it's in part, again, the APA, you know, white therapist owning that And then therapists like me speaking out and saying, I get it. And we're doing the work from the inside. Mm -hmm. And we're going to continue to show you that we can be trusted, that we are real. Because there's also that fear Mm -hmm. that we are just a pawn of the system. And we're going to try to medicate Mm -hmm. and we're going to try to manipulate. And we're going to try to, you know, like we're just working for the man, basically. And so that's something I love about like social media and things of that nature, because so many therapists can now come out and show themselves to a degree. You know, you can hear how I speak. You can, you know, see me wear my head wrap unapologetically. You can you know, just, yeah, just, just understand who I am as a person. And I think that has made therapy safer on a lot of levels. And then I think it's, I'm going to say this, it's safer for black women than black men. Mm -hmm. I want to say it's safer for women of color than men of color, because again, remember I listed the, 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 the men, the things that men can do and be, and emotional is still not one of them. Vulnerable is still not really on that list. And so being a woman, one thing we are allowed to do is be emotional and collective, vulnerable and collective. Like that's always been a thing. It's been used as a negative for a long time, but it's been allowed. Um, women are allowed to sit together and cry or share their feelings. And and so I think that's why in a lot of, in all across the board, mental health is at a higher, women are seeking mental health treatment at a higher rate than men, like just across the board. Right. Um, so there's, it's just so layered and nuanced and it's not made up. And so I think the first thing is to validate you're smart to not trust. So what feels safe right now? You know, maybe your first session isn't about your childhood trauma. It's about the chick who sits beside you at work that you can't stand. Start there. Mm -hmm. Mm. It's about just that you're tired. And we talk about ways to help you get better sleep. You know, let's ease in in a way that feels Mm. safe. We got all the time we need. Gosh, there was so much in there. I'd love to have a prolonged conversation about that too, but I want to make sure we respect your time today. But the, the system... With particularly with the timeline and education that you just provided was set up to oppress, you know, which is just mental pressure, distressed with the intent to control, you know, in an unjust way. And in some ways, I would argue that it it still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there is still elements of the system set up to impress and oppress. And I would think it's the responsibility of those of us in leadership who have power and influence in our field to seek to understand not where you or the field's getting it wrong, but where I'm getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Because I think our right under our, my nose, our own organizations and missions can be set up to a breath. Even with the best intention, sometimes with the best intention. And that's why I just, I value you being a, someone who is willing to lean in this with us. It tells me that you, you care deeply about the reckoning. And every time I talk to you and we talk about some of this injustice, I feel more committed uh, to be like, yeah, it's, it's, I have responsibility in this and um, not just with the organization I lead and the people I serve, but, I have responsibility just to do more than say I care about diversity mm-hmm. and let, you know what I mean? And how do we put action behind it? So anyway, I don't want to spend all the time because I've learned too, it's not your responsibility to always be in the education seat around the difficulties of being black in navigating mental health. But man, I dang sure appreciate 
when you do lean in and give us your truth, because I'll learn from it. And I think hopefully a lot of our people will learn from it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Courtney, thank you so much for your time today. Stay grounded, your truth. Mm, Yeah. I take really deep breaths with my hand on my heart. Mm. Yeah. And my feet on the ground. And again, I'm a Southern girl, so I will even go outside even now barefoot in the grass. There is something about having your feet on the ground, your hand on your heart and your head to the sky and take a deep breath. It Mm. brings you back to yourself. Awesome. Thanks, Courtney. I appreciate you continue to bring uh, such magic to um, uh, the community that we get to share with you. Uh, And it's well beyond the guests that we serve. It's our team. You know, every time you're there, you just, you bring all of you and we we're better for it. So we're glad to get to be your friend. We're glad to get to do what we do with you. We're proud of everything else that you're doing out in the world. And thanks for letting those that joined us today, hopefully uh, believe a little bit more in their truth, uh, reclaim who they are. Uh, and uh, live more into the center of who they're becoming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for the work that you all do as well. If you want to learn more about OnSite and our various in-person, online, and digital offerings, please go to onsiteworkshops.com. At OnSite, we have seen that enhancing emotional health changes lives and helps us collectively create a more empathetic and more self-aware world. Our unique and proven therapeutic framework and healing hospitality can help you find the emotional wellness you deserve. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call one 800 341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.